Issues Etc. guest Dr. Rod Rosenblatt died on February 2nd, 2024. In his memory, we present this Issues Etc. Encore. So are, are we sinners because we sin, or do we sin because we're sinners? <laughs> well, you know what? I'd have to really think about that. I don't like to play word games. That's a brief excerpt from my interview with popular radio and television teacher Joyce Meyer on the issue of original sin. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Tonight we're talking about original sin. It's an important question, isn't it? Are we sinners because we sin, or do we sin because we're sinners? It is more than word games. The question really goes to who are we in our fallen state? And um, even more importantly than that, what did Jesus do? What was necessary for Jesus to do for us to save us from our fallen state, our sin and its consequence, death? You see, the question of original sin is a huge question. We'll entertain it tonight on Issues Etc. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt is our guest. He's professor of systematic theology and Christian apologetics at Concordia University in Irvine, California, and he's co-host of the national radio show, The White Horse Inn. Rod, welcome back. Thanks, Todd. All right, same question to you. Do we sin because we're sinners, or are we sinners because we sin? You know, that question might sound like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but it really isn't. The Reformation position against all forms of Pelagianism and children being innocent, the the Reformation position, and they thought it was coming directly out of St. Paul's writings, was we sin because we're sinners. Um, The the deepest problem is a state of heart or a state of uh, uh, inner corruption much more than it is what we do. What we do is damn worthy, but our problem's worse than that. If we get this one, original sin, wrong, Rod, can we hope to have a biblical understanding of man, and more importantly, of Jesus' work to save man? You know, it's almost impossible. They're logically linked. If you have a superficial and lightweight view of sin, it's going to logically affect what you see as happening at the cross. What has replaced the biblical teaching of original sin in many Christian churches today? Well, as near as I can tell, it isn't brought up at all. Um, But if it is brought up, it's going to be superficial. It's going to be things that you do and recipes to cure it. And the Reformers would have thought that that was almost not worth the time of day. Why is that? How big of an issue was original sin for the Reformers? Well... They were up against the Roman Catholic uh, polemicists of their day, but the it was the biblical writings that convinced them of this. It was Psalm 51, uh, in sin was I conceived, and that didn't mean sex was sinful. It means that from my very beginnings as two-celled, Adam's guilt and Adam's corruption were part of me. Um, and when Paul writes in Ephesians that we were dead in sin... The Roman Catholics insisted that was overcalling the matter. So what exactly was the Roman Catholic teaching during the Reformation on original sin? Well, it was a deep, deep wound, and the, and the uh, extra added gifts of grace were lost. That is, 
Adam's and Eve's ability to spontaneously, spontaneously love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbors as themselves was lost. But the natural gifts were wounded. Uh, we were not dead in sin. We were in need of medicinal grace to heal our weakness. And the Reformers said, that's not biblical enough. This sounds an awful lot like many American evangelicals and what they believe about original sin. Uh, wounded, weak, but not certainly not dead. Yes. Um, it's amazing. It, it, some of our White Horse Inn listeners think that we're being preposterous when we say that on the really important questions they would have sided with Rome in the 16th century. And since they have all kinds of tracts against the Pope in their narthex or in their opening hall, they can't see how, how that could possibly be. But you're seeing the connection right there. And to your earlier question, uh, what would this do to your doctrine of the cross? You end up with a coach rather than somebody who raises you from spiritual death. Or, or perhaps um, they might say, well, you end up with a Savior back in 1972 in your basement when you committed your heart to him, but from that point on, he's really useful to you more as a coach to help you try not to sin anymore. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I, um, I used to tell my students at an evangelical college, you don't hear the preaching of the gospel on Sunday mornings, and they would get very huffy about it and say, we have a Bible-believing pastor, and by George, that's what he does. And I'd say, well, give me some examples of some of the sermons. And of course, they were all instructions on how to conquer sin in your present life. I said, the time you do preach the gospel is when you have an evangelistic meeting. But once a person is a Christian, there's no need for them to hear it anymore, you think. And it all goes back, you think, to a deficient view well, of it's sin? Sure, it's sure one of the major building blocks. If it isn't the only thing, um, you, you know, as I said, your doctrine of sin sets up your logically sets up your doctrine of the cross. A mutual friend of ours, Bob Meyer, uh -huh. he believes that the Reformation was really at its bottom about a debate over original sin. What does Bob mean by this? Well, one time we were walking across campus, and he said, "What do you think is the most important doctrine to come out of the Reformation, Rod?" And I said, "Well, I think it's." Uh, that it was uh, salvation or justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ's merit alone. He said, I disagree. I think it's the doctrine of total depravity. And you know, he had a point. If you don't have, Luther said, a, a right uh, analysis from the doctor of the sickness, you're sure as heck are not going to have him prescribe the, the called-for cure. So, so what it really means then, Bob's point really, is that there are an awful lot of Christians walking around thinking that they have this proper biblical view of salvation by, by grace alone, through faith alone, for Christ's sake alone, but because they also at the same time inconsistently harbor a deficient view of sin, uh -huh. their doctrine of justification is really not all it should be. Yeah, in many ways, the dear evangelical should reread. He, God bless him, he believes the Bible's the inspired word of God, and for that he gets an A. But Romans 3... You know, where Paul concatenates a whole bunch of Old Testament verses, and it's the darkest, darkest paragraph or paragraphs in the whole Bible. If in Romans 1 he clobbers the pagan who says, look, we didn't have a book, you can't call us guilty. And if in Romans 2 he clobbers his fellow Jews 
who said, we have the oracles of God. God, God couldn't hold anything against us. In Romans 3, it's the whole world. And boy, is that dark. There's no one who seeks after God. There's no one who does right. There's no one, um, you know, it's an extended, dark, dark picture. And the old Lutherans believed that until you reach that level of darkness, there really wasn't a gospel. Is man conceived and born with a free will regarding God, in spiritual matters, that is? Luther fought like crazy to say no to that. The, the Reformation terminology was in things earthly and in things heavenly. And they didn't care a whit about free will in things earthly. What should I do for a living? Shall I marry this girl or that? Or should I marry at all? Or any of that stuff. It completely bored them. But they were completely interested in the question, can I bring anything to my justification before God, including an ability to accept Christ as my Savior? And their answer was no. Rod, let's deal with a couple objections uh, before we go on to Romans chapter 7. It's not fair. How could it possibly be fair for God to count me and everyone else guilty of Adam's sin? Yeah, and it's a question that does come up in conversation. There's no doubt about it. The, the uh, I think, turning point or the linchpin of the thing is in Romans 5 in which Paul argues that Adam was our representative before we existed. It was as if Adam was a perfect statistical sample of every human being yet to be born. And metaphorically speaking, it was as if he turned to the whole yet-to-be-conceived human race and said, what do you think I should do? And all of us together answered, eat the fruit. The representative word in Romans 5 is very similar to what we have in government, where in theory those guys are supposed to vote representatively of their constituency at home. Adam was voting for us before we came to be. It would be wonderful to be able to argue, look, I was dealt three cards missing to a, 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 to a straight, inside straight, and nobody could have played that hand. But Romans 5 answers that and says Adam didn't act alone. He acted for the whole race yet to come. Isn't the person raising that objection, it's not fair, essentially saying, picking up on what you just said, if I would have been there in Adam's place, that's, I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. That's what uh, Richard Burton sang in Camelot, uh, or whoever sang uh, the part of Lancelot, and in that wonderful song, C'est Moi, one of the, one of the uh, verses goes... The soul of a knight should be a thing remarkable, his heart and his mind as pure as morning dew, with a will and a self-restraint that's the word that's the something of every saint he could easily work a miracle or two. To love and desire he ought to be unsparkable, the ways of the flesh should offer no allure, but where in the world is there in the world a man so untouched and pure? C'est moi, c'est moi, I'm forced to admit. Tis I, I humbly reply, that man in whom these qualities bloom, c'est moi, c'est moi, tis I. I've never strayed from all I believe, I'm blessed with an iron will. Had I been made the partner of Eve, we'd be in Eden still. C'est moi, c'est moi, the angels have chose to fight their battles below, and here I stand as pure as a prayer, incredibly meek, with virtue to spare, 
the godliest man I know. C'est moi. <laughs> <laughs> Is that for memory, Rod? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. We're dealing with uh, Savant here, I believe. Uh, no, I'm just kind of a fan <laughs> of the old musical. <laughs> it, was, it was Goulet in that, that wonderful whiskey baritone voice he's got. Whiskey and cigarette baritone, yeah. by the way. Yeah, Goulet. Are you but, saying... But the text of it is marvelous for that. Had I been made the partner of Eve, we'd be in Eden still, and a lot of us believe that. Are you saying, going back to being conceived and born with Adam's sin and guilty of it, are you saying that these cute, cuddly newborns are actually dead in sin? Afraid so. That was the Reformation position, and they thought they had it based on St. Paul. But they look, and they seem so innocent. I know. Luther said this one is hard, hard to believe and hard to defend, and you're going to have to believe it because Scripture says it. I mean, if, the, if those babies were innocent, they wouldn't die. I guess that's kind of the bottom line, isn't it? I mean, if, if someone wants to assert that, that infants to a certain age are either unaccountable to God for their sin or innocent of any sin, then they wouldn't be dying, would they? That's right. It's the, the biblical connection is sin-death. Okay, let's talk about um, Romans chapter 7, if we could. Because this is uh, the next logical step in the argument between those who say uh, original sin means dead in trespasses and sins, or merely wounded or weak, Paul's talking there in Romans chapter 7. Is he speaking of himself reflectively as though he were not a Christian, or is he talking about himself as though he is a Christian? He's talking about the latter. He, it's in, written in the present indicative. It isn't that I was, but that I am. And what does he say of himself? Um, let's see. Let's see. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And earlier he had said that things that I long to do, I never do, and the things I hate doing, I'm always doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? All right. That's the best description of the Christian life in all the Bible. There are those who say it isn't the Christian life, but in fact, Paul's reflecting upon his days before he was a Christian. What's the problem with that interpretation? Well, the burden of proof is on them. The language is on our side. That is, it's written in the present indicative. So the burden of proof is on them to show that it isn't what it looks like. What difference does it make if it's Paul before or after conversion? Well, if it's Paul before conversion, then in conversion he can conquer this by the power of the Spirit and by being adopted into the family of God and being equipped so forth and so forth and so forth. There's no reason he can't conquer it. So it really has to do with, you said it was the best description of the, uh, of the Christian life you've ever read. Why do, you, why do you say that? Well, because it, it, it so well describes the heart and mind of, of the Christian as they seem always to lose the fight, you know, against sin. You know, it's forever winning. And, and when and how is this going to be over with? And Luther said, not till you die. Well, then again, kind of like with the Adam and Eve question, a person who says, no, this must be Paul before he was a Christian is essentially saying, if they're a Christian, that I don't struggle against sin, aren't yeah, they? I don't know how you escape it. And, you know, one of, one of uh, the LCMS guys wrote, a, I think, a dissertation on this, Mike Middendorf, The Eye of the Storm, and it's the exegesis of this paragraph in the close of Romans 7. 
And I don't think there are very many theologians left in the Western world who take the position that I've described. There are very few. But that's too bad, because it really is what the language says. This is the description of the Christian. Rod, what difference does all of this conversation on original sin, getting this one right according to God's Word, what difference does it make regarding the saving work of Christ for sinners? Well, if we are dead in sin, we're going to need a Savior who raises us from the dead. We will have nothing to provide. The Lutheran Confession said we aren't even as innocent as the rocks. At least they didn't rebel against their Creator. The setup for the cross is a deep, deep view of our inherited guilt as in addition to our actual guilt. Until it's very, very dark, as dark as St. Paul describes it, it's, it's impossible to get to a real Savior who's substituting for us, giving us life to the dead, and, and uh, imputing his righteousness to us. Is this, let me, let me read one. Do you mind if I read one from William Lane Craig? I think he really has an interesting take on this. Go ahead. Um, it's in his book um, about the sun, S-O-N. It's a defense of the resurrection. It's called The Sun Rises, Moody Press 81. Listen to this. After he talks about uh, the turn-of-the-century optimism, Emile Couet, and uh, every day and every way I'm getting better and better, and the founding of the liberal Protestant, the Christian century, um, and all of that optimism, comes two world wars. Quote, No longer could man portray himself as an innocent child. Something was radically wrong with him. This conviction is powerfully displayed in Joseph Conrad's novel, The Heart of Darkness. The title of the novel refers not to the heart of deepest Africa, where the story takes place, but to the heart of man himself. As the dying man in the story looks into his own heart, his last words are, The Horror, The Horror. The title of William Golding's novel, The Lord of the Flies, also contains a deep truth about man's nature. For Lord of the Flies is the translation of the ancient word Beelzebub, one of the names of Satan in the New Testament. In Golding's gripping tale, a plane load of English schoolboys marooned on an island degenerates into murderous savages. Golding shows that the evils of society at large stem from the heart of man himself, which is under the dominion of the Lord of the Flies. Perhaps the predicament of modern man was best summarized by G.K. Chesterton in a letter to the London Times, which had invited people to write on the subject, What's Wrong with the World? Chesterton answered, Dear Sirs, I am... Yours truly, G.K. Chester. <laughs> so this is why St. Paul will set mirror images of the first Adam and the second Adam when he writes to the Romans, the one act of disobedience and the one act of obedience. Absolutely. Romans 5 is just a linchpin for this. If you have a view of man that he is merely weak weakened by a sinful nature, or perhaps possesses no real sinful nature at all, but only commits what they call actual sins. He sins, but he's not a sinner. Yeah. Then, then how are you going to make sense of, of where Paul talks about the first Adam and the second Adam? You're not. You're not. There are whole bunches of Scripture you're simply not going to be able to make sense of, because Scripture is realistic, and that kind of theology isn't. Our in-studio email address is issuesetc at kfuo.org. And our call-in number as we talk with Rod Rosenblatt about original sin, 
2727 1-800-730-2727. Frank is waiting in Indianapolis. Frank, welcome to Issues, etc. Hi, gentlemen. Pastor Rod, got a question. Two questions. Isn't this straight-up heresy? And isn't this stranglehold that's been on professing Christians? Could you tell us a little bit about Charles Finney? <laughs> All right. Christian th- perfectionism. Thank you very much, Frank. I appreciate two questions. Let's take them in order. Is is anything other than a a full blown view of original sin heresy? Well, they rightly threw Pelagius out of the church. He should have been thrown out. He said every baby is born as innocent as Adam, um, and that is just a utter denial of what Scripture says. So they threw him out, and they should have. But they never really, really threw out semi Pelagianism. That is that either me beginning the thing or God beginning the thing, the two of us working together could save me. And that really, in one form or another, was the theology of medieval Rome and, in a certain way, of every Arminian. And I don't know if I want to call it heresy, but boy, it ain't biblical Christianity. He also asks about Charles Finney and Christian perfectionism. Give us a primer on this. And where, uh, where, how does Finney's view of man stack up against Scripture? Well, Finney, uh, don't lay $20 on the table in Las Vegas, you're going to see him in heaven. I mean, he denied every major doctrine of Christianity. Um, his atonement isn't an atonement at all. It's really a remaking of you by you pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, and you've got the ability to do it, and you're responsible to do it or else. Um, Christ isn't dying for your sin. He was just in the wrong city at the wrong time, and it was an unfortunate thing he got killed. Uh, And you are entirely perfectible, and you can do it on your own steam. I mean, this really is outside the circle. And yet, Finney has been called by some of our guests on this program the most influential, uh, quote-unquote, theologian in American Christianity. He, in fact, won the whole debate. He is, and that's really a problem, not an answer. I mean, that sort of stuff is intuitively correct to us, and this is where Luther meant when he called uh, reason Frau Hulda the devil's whore. What he was really talking about was our, our instinct telling us as to how we could be justified before God. And if Jeremiah was speaking of this, and I think he was, there's a way which seemeth right unto man, but the way thereof is death, our intuitive view is completely off base, and Scripture's got to correct it. Let's talk with Mike in Kansas City. Mike, thanks for waiting. Yeah, hi, uh, Pastor Todd and, and Dr. Rosenblatt, and I uh, wanted to say I'm a supporter of Issues Etc., and I hope others would consider doing the same that are listening, because it's a, it's a great resource. And, and Dr. Rosenblatt on, uh, I believe it's a whitehorsein.org, I, I really enjoy the, the programming there also. Uh, what I wanted to say about original sin is that, you know, this is my favorite topic, because I had been educated theologically in the in the evangelical church, and and this topic is the topic that actually uh, that actually showed me the, the real problems with the evangelical church. Praise and that God! To, yeah, uh, yes. Thank you for that, and thank him for that. And uh, uh, and and one of the big hang-ups that I saw was the evangelical church. If if they do talk about sin at all, it's always committed sin. Yep. It's always what, and 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 I found that to be very interesting because the evangelical church, it's it's conversely, it's all about me, whether 
I do something right or I do something wrong. Yep. When the simple truth is, it's not about me. It's about Christ. Right. I, I am guilty because of what Adam did, and I am redeemed because of what Christ did. And yeah. if I filter everything through that worldview, then I have absolute equality within this worldly kingdom with everyone else, so therefore it actually, that worldview actually enhances my self-image within Caesar's kingdom. It makes my life easier here. <laughs> All right, Mike, uh, yeah. you laid a lot on the table. Can you, in, in about one minute, uh, wrap up everything Mike had to say there? Well, I, uh, God bless him for seeing through this. If we talk all the time about actual sins, we're not getting to the depth of what the Bible says. Luther said, if you spend all your time talking about actual sin, you're not getting to the real problem. The problem is primarily a condition of heart. And even Jesus talked that way, you know, when he said, you imagine that by washing the dishes this and the utensils that, (laughs) but it's out of the heart that come evil thoughts, blasphemies, fornications, and all the rest. The problem's deep, deep, deep down in the heart. And when an evangelical says, well, doesn't God judge the heart? The answer is yes, but that's pretty bad news, not good news. Here's an email from Daniel in St. John's, Michigan. Rod, he writes, Many folks seem to confuse the capacity to make choices with the ability to seek God. It's an easy thing to do in our can-do culture. Free will toward God, absolutely not. This truth has been one of the most liberating and humbling things that has ever happened in my Christian life. The flesh hates the frontal attack by God. In slaying our self-efficacy, um, our illusion that we can do anything without the mingling of sin in our best intentions. In Romans 7, Paul declares in verse 8, For I know that nothing, dwells, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out, clear as can be, says Daniel in St. John's, Michigan. Your thoughts there, Rod? Yeah, he's, he's got it. He caught it. Um, and, and that really is, you know, you asked earlier, why does this matter? There's a guy seeing why it matters. This one comes from Mike in Orland Park, Illinois. He listens on WYLL. Dear gentlemen, as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, of course I believe in original sin, but I fail to understand how deciding to accept God's free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ is a work. Please explain that to me. By the way, taking into consideration the fact that you think even accepting Christ is a work. No wonder most Lutherans, um, let's say, mo- no wonder most Lutherans aren't known for evangelism. He says, you guys continue to call yourselves that. I don't know, uh, we're following Christ, not men, as great as Luther was. Your thoughts there on Mike's contention? Well, uh, I certainly don't want to, um, to lay out the Lutheran Church in Missouri Synod as a paradigm for active evangelism. That's something we've got to keep working on. Uh, and in many ways, I think we've been intimidated by thinking only the pastor can do this, and if I do it, I'll surely do it wrong. So the best is not to do anything. That, that's got to be corrected, and we've got to do some training of people. But if you go but out and do it... Tr- the truth of the matter is that as a Lutheran and as a Reformation child, you can tell somebody to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that old... Uh, uh, saying, you know, believe like a Calvinist and, and preach like an Arminian, you know, there's some truth to that. That is, tell somebody like the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. 
And when they do, then they're put into a pastor's class, and they discover slowly from the scriptures that actually that was given to them from heaven itself. But what's wrong if that person walks away without having been corrected in, in a misperception that somehow the real key, the real um, turning point came when he exercised his free will and made his decision for Jesus, and not the other way around? Yeah, um, the catechesis, or the teaching of the Scripture, should correct that. Granted, it looked like the other. It does to us every time. And if an evangelist is telling you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, of course it looks like you're doing the one. You know, of course it looks like that. But the study of the Scriptures will correct it. By the way, Mike, I would point out to you that uh, you're listening to this, con- to this conversation, which is, in a large part, um, evangelism. Uh, and it's two Lutherans. So, so much for Lutherans not caring about evangelism. This one certainly does. I think Rod probably does as well. Greg in Kansas writes this, if, uh, Dr. Rosenblatt, if you get original sin wrong, will most, if not all, doctrine be wrong? Well, over time it may infect everything because it's a linchpin. It's, it, think of it like getting your doctrine of Scripture wrong. You know, the old Lutherans said, if you get that one wrong, it's the fountain of every other doctrine. And you've got to get your doctrine of Revelation right, and you've got to go to sola scriptura. Otherwise, you're going to end up with two, three, four, or five sources of Revelation, and it's an epistemological mess. On this one, if you don't, as Luther said, if you don't know the depth of the disease, um, you're going to be looking for the wrong cure. It's got to be that, that the message is grounded in a really dark Pauline view of our plight. And only then does the greatness of what Christ has done really shine. I want to come back to something you said right before the break, where he uh, said a lot of evangelicals kind of comfort themselves because they focus on sins yep. rather than sinfulness, uh, when the focus should be on both. Uh, that God judges the heart. They say to themselves, look, I know what I did, but if God looks at my heart, he'll see I didn't mean it, or I didn't, or I meant well. Is that any comfort? No, and they didn't mean well either. <clears throat> There's a limit to that. That's why Luther counseled, if you start looking within yourself to find some degree of assurance of where you stand with God, all you're going to find is darkness and sin and hatred and all sorts of awful things. And he said, that's why you must not look inside to the self to confirm anything. Um, you look outside to the promises and to Christ himself, and it's the only assurance there is. Someone might object and say, if the picture is as dark as you've painted it on our fallen nature, and um, if Christians remain uh, sinners after conversion in need of Jesus Christ's forgiveness, then it sounds like you're saying Jesus didn't really take care of sin when he died on the cross. Well, if you're talking about our condition of sin, absolutely, and Scripture screams it. If you're viewing it like Wesley or Finney, and that is that the thing that Christ did on the cross was to eradicate it or help us to eradicate it or something like that prior to death, the technical term is perfectionism, and Scripture will not allow it. I mean, we were in Romans 7, and if we're right on that, all of us, that it's a present indicative, there's Paul saying what he is experiencing as a believer, and it ain't pretty. 
Rod, uh, is there any instruction uh, regarding uh, original sin when Jesus is uh, Jesus, and I think uh, later one of the apostles will write about um, good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit, good spring or fresh spring, fresh water, bad spring, bad water. Does that teach us anything about this dividing line on man's nature and why it is, if we're good-natured, we should be bringing forth nothing but good fruit? Yeah, um, the, the analogy is used in Scripture itself, and, uh, and Luther makes wide use of that. He, he says, look, the problem is down at the root. You know, if, if, you, if you don't have a problem at the root, some sort of dedicated cleanup campaign and you can improve yourself every day, like Emil Kue said, in every, every day and every way I'm getting better and better. But, you know, Chesterton one time said there is at least one doctrine of Christianity that's empirically observable. And, of course, he meant the doctrine of sin. Um, how a person has that kind of optimism in the face of terrible, you know, inhumanity on man's part to other men I don't know how in the world you sustain that. If they think I've got a problem believing Jesus was raised the third day, I've got a problem wondering how they can even read the evening newspaper. It, it seems to require, not only if one looks at history or one reads the, the, uh, the, uh, the headlines of the newspapers, or if one simply contemplates himself, his own actions, his own thoughts, his own words and deeds and motivations, it seems to require an incredible amount of denial yep. to, to assert that man is essentially good. Yeah, and secular writers hammer this. Remember last hour I quoted Joseph Conrad, and, and the end of the book, the man is looking into himself and his words are the horror, the horror, and that's introspection. In our day, you know, the, the book uh, One Nation Under Therapy, in our day we are marketed that the self is the answer, and that is beyond me if, um, if you even have knowledge of self. Bruce writes this via email from Loveland, Colorado. If we object to being imputed with Adam's guilt, then shouldn't we also object to being imputed with Christ's righteousness? Absolutely. He goes on, but that would seem to us outside the veil of Christianity, and to put us outside the veil of Christianity and into a position where we would have to earn our salvation. He's a good theologian. So it, it, it's really two sides of the same coin. If one says, I have Christ's righteousness imputed to me, it is completely inconsistent to somehow say, but I don't have Adam's sin Absolutely. imputed to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Paul presents it in Romans 5 just like that. Adam's guilt and, and corruption are imputed to me, and then the second Adam's righteousness is imputed to my account as if it were mine. That's the parallel in Romans 5. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, and by another man's obedience, the many were made righteous or declared righteous. Well, another thing that the emailer raises is, uh, he says he remembers from his evangelical days when they used a passage from Ezekiel, the soul that sins it shall die, the sins of the, of the fathers will not be counted against the, uh, the children. And he said that passage was used to, quote-unquote, disprove original sin. How do you respond? Heavens. Now, evangelical churches should not be preaching against original sin. 
Even Nazarene Wesleyan churches shouldn't be doing that. Um, Wesley kept saying that he held to original sin when his Reformation critics answered him. Um, and granted, it was kind of inconsistent, but if you read Wesley the Evangelist preaching Christ, the background to it is a deep doctrine of sin. I just wish he would have stayed being an evangelist and not started writing theology. Janet in Virginia writes, Thank you so much for addressing this issue. I'm just coming out of a church that loved Charles Finney, thought Romans 7 was Paul before conversion, and was big on Christian perfectionism. She says, I love the Lord Jesus, and sitting under these teachings made me have thoughts of suicide. The pastor told me I was not born again because of sin still in my life. When I left the church, they told my husband that I didn't want to face my sin. Hearing uh, Hearing this tonight is adding some much-needed healing to my soul. I still hear those old voices that I'm not saved. Interesting, facing the idea that I am nothing in myself brought me peace and freedom. Trying to improve myself made me want to die. John Wesley was another big favorite of this church, although they never talked about Wesley's big conversion from Romans. Do you know anything about this? Did his quote-unquote methods continue after his Romans moment any ideas to help me recover from the bondage of sitting under this teaching, this bondage that this teaching put me in, she asks. God bless her. I mean, to get out of that mess, it, it's a great illustration for everybody else that, you know, if you're under that business of that you can perfect yourself before you die, you end up with a logical why in the road. Either Phariseeism, that is, I'm actually pulling this off, and people will say, I haven't sinned for four years, three months, four days, and six hours. Or it's a depression slash suicide. I'll never make it. And all of that is what happens when Christ is not the total rescuer of people who are dead in sin and hate God and all those negatives, and Christ is greater. But someone who says, let's just take our pastor hypothetically, if we could, for a moment, who says, Okay, you're not born again because you still sin. If he's, if he's essentially saying, I am born again because I don't sin, Kevin, isn't he saying he doesn't need Jesus anymore? Well, yeah, that, that's certainly, you could, you could say that in a moment. But my heavenly days, you know, even on a light level, if somebody tells me they haven't sinned for that many months and weeks and days and hours... A pastor friend of mine heard that one time and said to a guy, would your wife sign an affidavit to that effect? (laughs) Mine wouldn't. Mine wouldn't, yeah, exactly. It is beyond my belief that in the opening entry hall at the Billy Graham Center in Minneapolis, that one of the big oil paintings is of Charles Finney. This is Jay in Stillwater, Minnesota. He writes, I'm wondering if the Holy Spirit leaves every time you willfully sin and then comes back when you repent. Is the Holy Spirit like a jack-in-the-box, always coming and going? And if one dies when he's gone, is one eternally condemned? He says, C.F.W. Walther writes on page 216 of the proper distinction between law and gospel, quote, The light of faith can be extinguished not only by gross sins, but by any willful intentional sin accordingly, Defection from the faith occurs far oftener than we imagine. Faith ceases not only in those who leave, leave a life of shame, but also in such as permit themselves to be led astray against their better knowledge and the warning of their conscience. They plan to do a certain thing and carry out their purpose 
Although they know that it is contrary to God's word, in such instances, faith becomes extinct. However, the person caught in this snare promptly recovers his faith if he promptly arrests himself in his wrongdoings, end quote. And then the question comes at the end. It seems to me that the Holy Spirit must constantly leap in, out, in and out of me as I am daily sinning, knowing I shouldn't get angry, but then I do, knowing I should witness, but then I don't, knowing I shouldn't lust, but then I do. Yes, I repent, but... Am, am, am I confused on whether I cease to be a Christian at various times of the day? What's the proper understanding of all this? Does the Holy Spirit, is he like a jack-in-the-box? Does he jump out of us when we willfully sin and then back into us when we repent? How would you sort all of that out? The answer is no. But, uh, the last thing that evangelicals need to hear from somebody from the Reformation is that it's a replication of what Wesley taught them, that they were lost and saved again six times before lunch. Finally, this is not Walter's strong suit, the end of that book. Salvation is finally theological. That is what Larry White was just saying on your ad. Salvation is a matter of believing that Jesus was the Christ and who substitutionarily died for me and rose again for my justification, that I'll be acquitted in the court because of his righteousness, none of my own. At its best, Lutheranism isn't talking rabbinically like Walther does there. At its best, it's saying, if you want out of the kingdom, you're going to have to really work at it, because you're going to have to get to the point where you once believed that God was triune, but you no longer believe that. You once believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah of Israel, but you no longer believe that. You once believed that he would return to end history and would acquit you in in God's court because of Christ's death, but you no longer believe that. It's theological. It isn't rabbinic. So the most we can say on the basis of Scripture is that the Holy Spirit, um, there is no promise that someone can willfully sin, remain in unrepentance, and expect to say, but I still have the Holy Spirit, nanny nanny boo boo to sin. Granted. Right. But evangelicals are worried about Wesley being done to him again, this time by the Missouri Synod. And, <laughs> and when we talk like that, we confirm it. They know what it's like to have the trap door taken out from underneath them six times a day. And Lutheranism is better than that. Let's see what Matt in Florida has to say. Matt, thank you for waiting, and welcome to Issues Etc. Good evening, Todd and Rod. How are you guys Hi. doing tonight? Very well. Okay. Doing very well, from what I hear. Rod, i got a... Um, Oh, I think we just lost Matt. We'll get him back here. Okay. He knows our number. Let's see what Nate in Austin, Texas, listening on KLGO, has to say. Hi, Nate. Welcome to Issues Etc. We'll try on Nate again. Our call-in number is 1-800-730-2727. You can always email us here in the studio, issuesetc at kfuo.org, 1-800-730-2727, or issuesetc at kfuo.org. Right. You know, Todd, yeah. uh, a scripture that occurs to me, and I use it in many contexts, and I, I think it's appropriate many times, that, that sentence that refers by Old Testament quotations to what the Messiah will be like when he comes, and he will be so gentle that he will neither break the bruised reed nor quench the smoldering wick. Evangelicalism turns people into that, the bruised reed, and the just barely smoldering wick. The promise is that the Messiah will not quench that or, or cut the cattail 
that's hanging there by one thread. That is not the ministry of the Messiah. It's a ministry of the announcement that his work is going to conquer um, the judgment that would fall our way, and it will not fall. Here's Nate from Austin, Texas, listening on KLGO. Hi, Nate. Uh-huh. We're having a little phone trouble, folks. It's it's all right. Uh, we're not picking on any particular callers. All of our callers are suffering from this. Let's talk about an a-, a so-called age of accountability, Rod, which is another way that people try and uh, thread the needle here. They'll say, well, okay, perhaps if children aren't born, conceived and born innocent, and they are born without Adam's sin, maybe... There's a, what, a, a probationary period, a grace period, a, a time of unaccountability before which they become accountable for this kind of sin? Well, bless the, bless the evangelical's heart, but it's sophistry. There's a reason that the eight-day-old Israelite was circumcised on the eighth day. He be, became an inheritor of the Abrahamic promise, and he couldn't say Abraham. And the parallel in the New Testament is baptism. That is, it is God's answer to what we inherit from Adam, and better than that, but at least that, so that God uh, has a plan for children, and it's in Scripture. Now, if you have a view that, um, I guess it kind of all goes together as a very tangled uh, ball of string, if you have a view that man is not entirely dead in trespasses and sins, I guess I'm asking the, the, the chicken and egg question. Is it that they have a deficient view of sin that they have to invent the age of accountability or uh, childhood innocence or something like that? Well, it, or is it that they've disregarded the means of baptism and therefore they have to reorganize their theology to somehow make back baptism for infants unnecessary? I think it's the latter, but, you know, you never know. If, you're, if your defining doctrine is a believers-only church... Well, you're not going to have infant baptism. If that's what defines you, the Anabaptists sort of embrace that as central, that it, it was going to be believers only. But the Reformation insisted that, or at least the Lutheran part of it, insisted that baptism makes believers. Now, we don't have the fifth point of Calvinism, where in, in holding that, we, that baptism regenerates, we don't have the fifth point of Calvinism, that is, that somebody, if they're dedicated from heart and soul for years to escaping, they will escape. They have a negative free will, but not a positive one. You can leave. It'll take more work than you think, because John 10 says it's going to be hard. But if you dedicate yourself to it, you can get out and make a pagan of yourself, and you need to be evangelized. But that is, that is a long ways from saying God has no plan for children till they're eight. Here's Matt from Florida. Matt, thank you for waiting, and welcome to Issues Etc. Hi, Matt. Hi, how you guys doing? Very well. Okay. So, uh, don't worry about the phones. It's it's. You guys were talking about something pretty good there as well, and it reminded me of something. Got a I got a question for you there, Rod. Okay. What's the difference between a psychiatrist and a coal miner? I know that one. Go ahead, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> a psychiatrist goes down deeper and comes up dirtier. Yep. <laughs> and, every, and everybody laughs at that. Yeah. But then they'll turn right around and they'll take the position, especially when something really bad and evil happens. They'll say, they'll say this, oh, that's evil, but I'm not like that. Uh-huh. They, they always pick that, that position. And when, especially when it's an evangelical, I always like to start here and say, 
do you have any point of reference, this side of Adam, what it would have been like to be perfect? Yeah. Any point of reference at all? And we don't. Outside of Christ, we have no point of reference whatsoever what it would have been like to have been Adam before the fall. Yep. We, we, don't know what that's, we don't know what that's like, but we'll turn right around and laugh when someone throws out a, a joke like that one. Yep. Because everybody knows that it's true. Yep. All right, Matt from Florida. Thank you very much, Frank, for keep trying as well. One minute to respond to Matt's thoughts there, Rod. Well, I, I think he's, his observation is absolutely true. It takes real energy to keep believing in the innocence of humans. Um, it, it, it takes a tremendous amount of energy because there's so much evidence against us. And in many ways, the comedians here sort of help us um, in the sense that they hold up what we are, and we get to laugh about it a little bit because that gives a little bit of relief. But the truth is that the, the human nature as it ex- is expressed is really ugly. You almost have to adopt a view of history and of current events and of your own life as though if, if in fact man is inherently good or even neutral, you have to adopt a view that somehow evil is an aberration in creation rather than the norm. Oh, yeah. And, and in, in our generation, the students who have attended college in our generation, they can't say the E word. Let's go to Austin, Texas, where Nate listens on KLGO. Hi, Nate. Okay. Second time's the charm, I hope. <laughs> First thing I wanted to say is I'm glad that the Rod's still there, assuming he's still there, not lost him anyway. Um, I just wanted to thank you guys for... When I, for the fact that your shows reminded me or actually showed me that we have a faith that's far more than subjective moralism. And, you know, and I'm just really grateful to God and for the people who actually let you guys have shows. Well, Nate. Although I don't know what the person was thinking that wanted two Calvinists, a Baptist, and a Lutheran on a show. <laughs> <laughs> you got a question, Nate? Yeah, actually, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not just going to ramble. No, that's um, all right. Um, well, back when I was in high school, I'd gone to uh, one of the big people Bible studies, and um, one of the, one of the um, people in the, in, the ser- in the study was saying that somehow, because Christ was born of a woman, he managed to uh, avoid a generational curse. Uh, something about somewhere in the Old Testament it says that um, I'll that the curse would go to the father, to the son, and to the son's son, on to the something generation. And I was wondering, have either of you ever heard any kind of analogy where somehow Christ was able to avoid uh, the taint of sin because he was born of a woman? All right, that's a very good question, Nathan. Thank you for listening in Austin. Thanks for the kind words about the program, too. I fully agree. Do we try to explain the how of Christ's sinlessness vis-a-vis original sin? Rod? Well, we will talk about his virginal conception and that God was his true father and not Joseph. But when you get into the technicalities of the, how sin is transmitted, most of the Reformers stayed a little clear of the details of that. Now, I know it becomes very, very important in the conversation if you're talking about abortion, but historically, Lutherans have been traducionists, and, and we don't do much beyond that. What does that um, mean? The, the problem here is that you get Bible teachers who are talking about things that are not central to the depth of our sin and the greatness of Christ's cross. 
There are a lot of things you can discuss in the Bible, but not are all of equal importance. Um, it, it's good to stay with Bible teachers who are talking about the important things of Scripture and not doing it um, the way you would trivia. Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is that Mary was as sinful as, uh, as Joseph was, and so uh, if, if we could somehow uh, splice together a genetic reason for Jesus' sinlessness, uh, then uh, really the mystery of the Incarnation would no longer be a mystery for us. It sounds as though we simply have to say what Scripture says regarding Christ's sinless nature and then stop talking. Yeah, I think that's the best counsel. Don't go beyond what it says, or at least if you do that, label it speculation. Justin's listening in Oklahoma City. Justin, welcome to Issues Etc. Hi, Justin. Hi, guys. How are you? Very well. Okay. One of the uh, central tenets that I've always uh, lived by and has always kept me humble is that Satan's original lie, if you will, was that we don't need God. And those that don't believe that we have original sin and we're dead in our sin have really kind of fallen for that. Justin, thank you very much. Rod, would you concur? Yeah, and the America, it, it is very difficult to do the doctrine of original sin in optimistic America. This is one of the reasons, I, I found this out after seminary, if they had taught it to me at seminary, I must have skipped the class or fallen asleep. One of the reasons the gospel had the tremendous effect it had in the first century was that everybody was cynical about the many gods of Greece and Rome, but there was this deep longing somehow that their sin could be forgiven. And along comes the proclamation of Christ and what his cross did, and it went like crazy. Now, I happen to live in Orange County, California, and the most pressing issue in Orange County, California, is not how can my sin be dealt with. It's how can I get a second BMW. So our culture and our, uh, what, the zeitgeist of, of modern America, postmodern America, is perhaps less conducive yeah. to, to, the, uh, to people bu- buying into Scripture's teaching of original sin? Sure. It, we're a can-do people, you know. There's an inveterate optimism, and I wouldn't want to kill that, but in theology it's the enemy, that kind of optimism, because it always inflates man and deflates Christ. Here's Doug from Kansas City listening on KCCV. Hi, Doug. Thanks for waiting. Actually, I'm on a cell phone, and I'm in route. Well, there went Doug. It was a glorious half-sentence. <laughs> yes, we always end up wondering what that might have, what might have <laughs> been when you're done with something like that. Okay, so um, we ha- the, picking up on the last caller's uh, uh, statement that buying into Satan's lie... Uh, you know, it, his first line was, of course... Did God really say? And the answer to that was very clear. The answer was yes. So instead of can do, Rod, we really need to either talk about can't do or can don't. We yep. there, there is no um, halfway house between if it's going to be, it's up to me, and what Scripture has to say about our our fallen nature. Yeah, it really is true. The, the Reformers believe that St. Paul would say, first of all, can't do. That would be the beginning. And in fact, in Romans 3, as we've seen, it's even darker than that, but it's at least that, can't do. All right, let's see if we can talk with Doug in Kansas City again here uh, in the last few minutes before this break. Doug, welcome. 
Yeah, I'm en route to uh, Tulsa, so if I lose you, I'm on a cell. Real quickly, I was, I'm just going to set one up for you. I think one of the reasons that the doctrine of election has fallen on hard times is there's a failure to understand the doctrine of original sin and total depravity, which is what makes election necessary. And so I was wondering if you would just comment on that, because I think that's really critical to why election is being so downplayed in our culture today. I'll hang up and listen. Good question, Doug. It's, it's a very good question, uh, one that I intended to get to as well. What do you say, Rod? You've got a, yeah, a few uh, minutes here. Yeah, there, there's a connection to that, too. Um, and Americans don't like that one either. It's not democratic. Uh, I did upload to the Modern Reformation site CFW Walther on predestination slash election, because I got tired of always answering it orally for Reformed believers. But Walther, an 1871 volume, there are three little parts to it. One is uh, a sermon on Romans 9 and Ephesians 1, which are the basic texts. And secondly, there's a thing that's catechetical, question, answer, question, answer, question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. And the third is a theological paper by Walther on predestination. That's a good place to start. Okay, on that, on that note, I remember one of my seminary professors pointing out that uh, Luth- Lutherans want to distinguish themselves uh, from their other Reformation brethren on the issue of election yeah. by the way they talk about it. And I think the term that uh, Luther perhaps used, but I'm sure Walther used it later, was Gnadenval, that is, election to grace. Yes. What's the point there? What's the distinction being made? Well, we will talk about a predestination. If you're a believer and end up in heaven, it's God's doing from start to finish, and he wrote your name in the book of life from before you were even born, before earth was created. So he gets the credit for it, but he doesn't get the blame for those who are lost. Um, It's, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, stoning the prophets and those who are sent to you, how often I would have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Um, or as C.S. Lewis put it, the doors of hell are bolted not from the outside, but from the inside. Um, We will get laughed at by every other type of Christian on this one, but the truth of the matter is that the Reformed brethren are really short on verses that back up God electing from all eternity to create people in order to damn them. There's a real shortage of verses on that. how, How short is the shortage? Well, they think they've got one in Jacob I've loved, Nisav I've I hated. Uh, it's Romans 9 primarily. And, uh, but anyway, read the stuff. And also, in the book of Concord, the formula of Concord, article, I think it's 11, on predestination, that, that's helpful to people, too. What, what does the Scripture's teaching on election have to do with Scripture's teaching on original sin, Rod? Oh, gosh, well... Because um, the, the, whole... ca- the caller said it, uh, the, uh, a proper understanding of total depravity makes election necessary. What did he mean, do you think? I suppose, you know, probably a Reformed brother, I suppose the glass through which he looks at it is the umbrella of predestination, and every other doctrine is understood in light of it. And so total depravity is going to make it necessary that if you are saved, God elects you to be saved, gives you faith in Jesus, and then preserves you in faith in Jesus till death. Okay, so again, we're kind of back to the interrelated nature of teachings like original sin and, uh, and, and how it really does, in many ways, your view of original sin does 
in fact, or could determine the direction that you go with any other doctrine. Well, yeah, if you're, if you're going to believe in free will, and as the Reformers put it, free will in things heavenly, free will in things heavenly, not earthly, but if you're going to hold to free will in things heavenly, you're not going to especially like verses on predestination. And why is that? Well, because if that's done with some degree of care, it's going to again remove your free will from you. Let's go to Nebraska to KLCV and talk to Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I'm a little tired. I hope I get my ideas out right. But I guess I think of original sin kind of like the tendency to have cancer. It's not really inherited, but all of the indicators are there to kind of metastasize, and it's carried on from one generation to the next. And then I have a question. Um, We had a friend who was rushing to the hospital, and their baby was um, born in the back seat of the car. And I thought, what if the baby would have died during that process, you know, died right before it came into the world? Will that baby never have a chance to go to heaven? Two good questions, Lisa, and thank you very much. You You got your ideas out very well. Thanks for listening. Okay, first question, what do you make of her cancer analogy? Well, as an analogy, it ain't bad. As long as we are responsible for the position that we have put ourselves in. And all disease analogies tend to break down there. Um, But, you know, it's passed on from generation to generation. The Lutheran Confessions think St. Paul certainly said that, and that there'll be nobody born without sin except for the two original creatures and uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Other than that, we are all who are conceived in the normal way inheritors of Adam's condition and of his what they called concupiscence, uh, actively uh, chasing after sin and loving doing it. So it's not just a tendency or a possibility of sinning. It is, in fact, a a genuine, real guilt before God, and it inevitably shows itself in actual sins. Yeah, and and Luther used to say, if we never did anything wrong, this still was sufficient to damn us, and God would be just in doing it. Lisa also asks us about babies who die before baptism. I noted from the paper this weekend that uh, Rome is rethinking limbo, which is obviously not an acceptable answer. So what do you say to her question? when, When you don't have direct biblical answers then you go to what's central and what you're sure of. And what we're sure of is Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And in that case, then you go with what you know most certainly, and that Christ dies for every sinner. That baby is under Adam's guilt, but is also under Christ's death. So you can say from a Reformation Lutheran point of view, uh, God will work this out in such a way that Christ is part of the equation, and you can look forward to meeting them. So we say only as much as Scripture permits us to say. Uh-huh. And then we say, uh, this is a God who is bent upon the redemption of all sinners, and yep. he wants none to perish or fall away. Yep, and Christ died for him. All right. Um, I guess... So, this is someplace we haven't gone yet. We've talked about the people who say we're born innocent, or the people who say we're unaccountable of our guilt to a certain age. And we've talked about those who say Paul in Romans 7 is really talking about himself as an unbeliever. 
What we have not discussed yet is someone who says, right, everything we've said about original sin is entirely true for the unbeliever, but it's not true for the Christian. How do you respond? Well, it isn't as if this goes to where, even if you're an evangelical and you come to know the Lord, that your original sin is gone. Now, we don't know that experientially, unless we're lying to ourselves, that we still battle with sin and lose way too often. But the other thing is that Scripture itself speaks to congregational members, believers, and speaks of them as in need of Christ because they continue to be sinners. We're not going to be rid of this till death. That's one of the reasons why it's incumbent on a person to hear the gospel preached even after they're a believer, because we will come to doubt that with everything that's within us. And the pastor is to preach faith into our hearts by by placarding Christ in his priestly saving office and his cross, so that will gather courage again that we aren't somehow out but in. So is this why Luther speaks so often of the old Adam or the old man that remains in the Christian? Right, and it's right out of St. Paul. Is it, uh, the Christian is no longer dead in trespasses and sins. In the new man, is the old man, the old Adam, dead in trespasses and sins? You know, the old Adam will never, never be a believer and will never behave himself. All he listens to is law, and that's the only motivation he knows is fear. And part of us is still that. Every believer is partially still that. And that's why we call the pastor to preach both law and gospel to a believing congregation. So as as Stephen Hine has often said on these airwaves, uh, the old Adam is not reformable. We cannot fix him up and we cannot turn him into, uh, we cannot improve his plight. Nope. Nope. Steve is right. Why is the teaching of original sin so very important? Why spend two hours talking about it on the radio, Rod? For the same reason we found when we started in Romans 3, the good news is only really, really portrayed in all the depth of its goodness against the background of our genuine guilt in Adam, our impotence in Adam, our rebelliousness in Adam, uh, us at our worst. Christ dies for us at our worst not as slightly good. God evidenced his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Robert from Minnesota writes this, uh, My friend, seminary educated in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, says that the concept of original sin is not found in the Old Testament, but, it was, but it was read back into the Old Testament by Augustine. He's, Robert says, I referred him to Psalm 51. How else can I respond? And why would a seminary teach that? (laughs) Yeah, that's the group out of which I came, and I left it when it lost its doctrinal footing. I don't know what they're doing each week, um, but it doesn't surprise me a bit. This is why you have to have a clergy that believes the Scriptures are true and that knows and is able to give a defense as to why they know they're true. Um, we need some apologetics taught at both seminaries to be able to go up against the new atheism, the old atheism, and against people who say, well, you've just chosen that position blindly, and somebody else can just as easily choose another position. Only the training in apologetics is the kind of thing that answers those sorts of things. If Scripture's teaching of original sin in all of its clarity, and, and you've said so often, in all of its darkness... Uh-huh. 
is either mitigated or lost, what will the consequences be among Christians? Well, I think they'll call a happy pastor, first of all, somebody who won't be, quote, negative. And that will be somebody who doesn't talk much about sin, which is to turn the church into something other than church. Um, They'll want a happy message, a positive message, and none of that negative, dark stuff. But Scripture knows nothing of the greatness of the cross apart from the depth of the real trap, and we're in it. Here's our mailing address. Box 9360, St. Louis, Missouri, 63117. Here's our resource line number, 1-800-737-0172. You can use either of those to receive a free complimentary copy of the Next Issues Etc. journal or to make a tax-deductible gift to help support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. For any size gift during the Easter season, that's the next five weeks, we're going to send you interviews on the Passion and the Resurrection of Jesus Christ The address, Box 9360, St. Louis, Missouri, 63117. Any size gift is deeply appreciated. Box 9360, St. Louis, Missouri, 63117. Or call that resource line 1-800-737-0172. 1-800-737-0172. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt is professor of systematic theology and Christian apologetics at Concordia University in Irvine, California. He's co-host of the radio program, the White Horse Inn. Rod, thanks for being our guest. You bet, Todd. Good to talk to you. And to you as well. You can't have one without the other. That's the bottom line of this conversation. You say, I believe in Jesus. I trust in Jesus. He's my Savior. You'll affirm things like how Jesus was born without sin. What Christian denies such a thing? You'll affirm things like Jesus didn't sin when he lived those, those 30-some-odd years among us in his incarnation. What Christian would deny that? You will agree that Jesus went sinlessly to the cross to sinlessly bear your sin and to pay for your guilt, right? Sure you will. Christians believe these things, don't they? What was the nature of your guilt? How guilty were you? If Jesus, of course, everyone agrees, was sinless, how sinful are we? I think the answer is quite clear, whether you go to individual passages of Scripture that declare man is conceived and born in sin, lost and condemned, and in fact dead in trespasses and sin. Or you could cut to the chase and go straight to the cross itself and to the man who is there answering for your sins. What becomes of him? He ends up dead. That's how guilty we are in our sin. And that death that he died for you and for me and for all sinners, that was enough. That was enough for all of us sinners. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc.